five men still alive. The rest have moved on. Take my chances, sir. To the depths. Life is cruel. Why should the afterlife be any different? I offer you a choice. Join my crew and postpone the judgment. One hundred years before the mast. Will ye serve? I will serve. <laughs> you are neither dead nor dying. What is your purpose here? Jack Sparrow sent me to settle his debt. What is your purpose here? Jack Sparrow sent me to settle his debt. Huh? Did they know? I'm sorely tempted to accept that offer. So we are now journeying through chapter six of Philip Yancey's book, Where is God When It Hurts? Uh, I will explain why I'm showing the, I showed that video. <laughs> yes. But uh, that scene is from Pirates. Pirates of Caribbean, Dead Men's Chest. Yes? No? Yes? Yes. Dead Men's Chest. So Pastor Fritz and I explored how pain is a gift. That was like the first initial chapters of chapters one to four. And you go and you ask yourself, why would pain be a gift? Well, uh, we went over uh, four different roles that pain gives us, both the physiological and theological ones. The physiological ones are really obvious uh, to us. One is uh, to prevent harm, right, further harm, because uh, pain, like leprosy, uh, if uh, leprosy is one of the diseases that Pastor Fritz explained, how leprosy, you can't feel a thing. You can't feel any pain, so you, you get, a t you get uh, subjected to walking through a fire without knowing, or you're cooking and you're, you accidentally burn your hand off without knowing, that type of thing. So pain prevents further harm. That was one rule. Second rule is that pain provides pleasure, right? Without your sensories, you don't have any pleasure. Or freedom. Uh, for us piano players out there, we're like, uh, if we don't feel the keys, 
right? Uh, there's no freedom to express our giftedness on the piano. So pain also provides freedom. However, the last role is more of a theological one and more scriptural. And we went over Psalm 23. And that is a, a very popular psalm, and it's about God being a shepherd, right? And uh, interesting enough, shepherding a sheep is not comfortable. Shepherding, what did the, the psalm say? Shepherding had a lot to do with the rod and staff. Agree? The rod is the stick, the staff had the hook, a stick with a hook in it. And interesting enough, what David said was that in that rod hooking, rotting and hooking, and the slapping and the hitting and the hooking, I find comfort. And I lack nothing, he says. Right? For those who have memorized that passage, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, and in your shepherding, in your curtain, right, I lack nothing. In fact, through your guiding me of the what's right and wrong, through the deepest valleys, the darkest valleys, I lack nothing. I find comfort. And also interesting enough, David says, by your rotting and shepherding and hitting, you make me lie down on quiet pastures. You make me go to the streams of living water. Interesting, right? Think about it. Like we, we, we sometimes I think that God is supposed to you know pet us on the head and it's all good, <laughs> you know. But then really he's going whack whack back back and then you know slap slap and go in and make us lie down on quiet pastures and make us and lead us to quiet waters. So if you want to know more about those uh, that um, that part, uh, just feel free to go back to our website and listen to the podcast or watch the video. Uh, I explain more what he meant uh, in Psalm 23. But let's go on. Last week. I quoted uh, Philip Yancey's quote from C.S. Lewis, who he quoted C.S. Lewis, in that we were talking about major tragedies, you know, things that we couldn't control, like tornadoes, earthquakes, mass shootings, the humble bus crash, right? And, and then uh, recently, there was another bus crash with similar, uh, similar capacity in New Mexico, if you heard, right? A, a semi derailed and then uh, hit head on with another bus, uh, with a bus, and then uh, the whole, like, about 23 people died there. It's like, why does this happen, right? And we ask ourselves, why does this suffering happen? So C.S. Lewis said this, these type of sufferings and tragedies is God's megaphone. And I agree, right? Last week we said, uh, we concluded that, you know what, folks, sometimes life gets a little honky-dory, right? You know, especially for me as a parent, uh, especially a working parent, what is, it's almost like a clock-in, clock-out thing every day, right? Joyce, you probably agree with that, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, you wake up, what do you do? You bathe the kids, get them ready, feed the children with the breakfast, go to school, drop them off, go to work, come back from work, pick up the kids, go and like cook dinner, then go to bed. Round two. And it's like da, 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 round three. And unfortunately, Saturday and Sunday is no different. It's like we think it's different, but it's not. It's just replace work with church and replace Saturday with swimming lessons, right? Or something. Right? You know, it's just, it's just brutal. And then so sometimes life just gets to do what life does best, to make us insensitive to what is actually really happening in the globe, in the world. And that in Romans 8, uh, what Paul says when we explored it, that the world is groaning. Creation is groaning. Creation is groaning for the children of God to be revealed so that it can be redeemed and be in a new creation. But then Paul says, we, we even explored it further, Paul says, yeah, guess what? Creation is groaning, but it's not, we're not waiting anymore. What did he say? Now you are co-heirs of Christ. Now you are redeemed children of God. In other words, creation should no longer have to groan. It is us as Christians. We need to reveal the, uh, the good news of the gospel. We need to give, reveal the life-giving message of the gospel and be part and partner with God of the redemptive work that he's already doing. 
He says, waiting, there's no more waiting. Creation should not be groaning right now, what Paul is saying. It should not be waiting because the children of God has already been established. Now is the time. So when C.S. Lewis said, tragedies and sufferings is a megaphone of God, it's actually a megaphone for us to remind ourselves of what are we supposed to do. Sometimes uh, when, uh, uh, so I shared a personal story with you, and sometimes like uh, whenever I hear about stories, especially stories when kids, uh, six or seven years old, uh, get murdered uh, by their parents, or, uh, or just recently, uh, uh, there's a missing boy right now at age seven, right? Uh, like uh, the, they found the mother uh, died, but uh, the, they're still missing the boy. That hurts. And, I sometimes, and then there are many times when I just can't figure out the words to say, but I feel the groanings in my heart. And I believe that that's the groanings of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not necessarily groanings as in just crying and bawling my eyes out. No, groanings as in reminding of what am I supposed to do in this world? What's my role as a Christian? So the question I, get, I closed last week was, if somebody asked you, for those Christians out there who are, who are Christian, you know who you are. If somebody asked you, like what uh, Wonder Woman would ask Stephen Trevor, are you like the best example of a man? You know, have you watched that, you know, that movie? I'm a movie buff, so I remember these lines. Can't remember my anniversary, but I can still remember my lines. Um, you know, like, you know, like, um, I, like so like, uh, one of them asked, are you the best example of a man? And then Stephen Trevor would say, I'm above average, <laughs> right? Well, if somebody asks you, are you the best example of a Christian? Can you say, can, can you affirmly say yes? Or I would actually respond in a better way. No. Not necessarily, but I'm a work in progress. I know who I am. I know who I am in Christ. And still work in progress against. I want to continue to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I want to work it out. I'm in work in progress. I want to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to grow in my heart. And yes, you are right. I may not be the best example, but I'm an example of someone, of a Christian who is worth it on it. Agree? Okay. So, that is why... Paul closed with that passage in Romans 8, with 26 to verse 27. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. It is not necessarily about like, oh, you know, groans as in groaning as in crying. No, these groans in light of the whole chapter is about being a participant in God's redemptive work. These groans are to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us to remind us of who we are and what role we have to play in this world. All right, on to chapter six of Yancey's book. And Yancey titled this chapter as, What is God Trying to Tell Us? And early in the chapter, he presented some questions that I'm sure we all probably asked about God, uh, asked to God. I'll quote some, uh, I'll quote what he said. He's, he goes like this. <coughs> Nevertheless, an ordinary tragedy like Yuba City bus wreck. It's interesting, hey? These bus wrecks, they're not unusual. These happen quite often, even back in uh, Yancey's day when he was writing this. Nevertheless, an ordinary tragedy like Yuba City bus wreck brings questions snarling to the surface. Why did those 29 kids deserve a grisly mass highway death? Was God trying to tell them something, or was he sending a warning to their parents and friends? If you were a teenager in Yuba City High School, you couldn't avoid those questions. And if you survived the bus accident as a passenger, the rest of your life you would wonder why you had lived when so many friends died. Does God reach down, slightly twist the wheels of school buses, and watch them career through guardrails? 
Does he draw a red pencil line through a map of Indiana to plot the exact, boat, uh, the exact path of a tornado? There, hit that house, kill that six-year-old, but skip over this nest house? Does God program the earth like a video game? Constantly experimenting with tidal waves, seismic tremblers, and uh, hurricanes? Is that how he rewards and punishes us, his helpless victims? Good questions, right? Have you asked that? Basically, to summarize, when bad things happen, have you ever asked, is God really, is God punishing me or telling me something? Have you ever asked that? I'll share with you this. I've been a Christian all my life. Well, uh, that's what I usually say, but really, truly, like my, Christian, my Christian faith really started when I started working. True trials happen when you're working, <laughs> I believe. But I've been a Christian most of my life, raised in a Christian home with Christian parents. Right? Uh, we have Christian literature everywhere. Chances are I have Christian forks, Christian chopsticks, Christian books, Christian like rice, Christian like, you know, quinoa, Christian everything, right? Everything was Christian, right? Uh, and you know, like, it was very a Christian environment. And uh, I was taught, I was brought up that when bad things happen to me, chances are God is punishing me. Usually that punishment is a result of lack of practicing piano. <laughs> Right? It's like, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm not practicing piano enough, right? Oh, you, you know, God saw you, you know, cheat. Oh, by the way, here's a story. I shared it with Rosanna. And I go, this is how conniving we were back then, those boys in that piano school. So, uh, you know, our piano is down in the basement. And then my mom's cooking in the, the, at, at the top floor because the kitchen's at the top floor, the piano's at the basement. So what I've done is that I figured out this. Uh, you know, cassette recorders, those ghetto blasters, they usually have two, right? So I put tapes in both of them and record one of my practices for the full two hours, right? Then, next subsequent days, when my mom's not looking, I would play it. Blast it, you know, <laughs> turn off the volume and play it so that my mom would go, oh, he's practicing. But I bet my mom knew, <laughs> right, how, how sneaky I was. I was trying to, you know, just play my practices so that she could hear it. So then, and then, and then, uh, and then the results was, Whenever I go back to school and I get, a, get my exam paper back at school and I get, like, I get a bad mark, I go, oh, did God see that? Or is he punishing me for that? You know, it's like, maybe he's punishing me with these bad grades because I, you know, skipped out on, I cheated on my piano practices. You know, that was back then. That was like when I was young. But, you know, as time went on, it, it actually stayed with me. You know, when I was in university, I even equated, you know, my GPA with, uh, with my sins, right? I get a bad GPA mark, I call, back in the day, you had to call in to get your marks, by the way. And you know how taxing it is when a B rhymes with a D? Oh you know, so that you're hearing it, that the automated service, and it goes, you received a grade of B. You know, like, and you go, is that D or a B? <laughs> you know, and you're hoping that there's a B plus, because then, how can you get a D plus, right? So like, you know, you, you know. So anyway, <laughs> right? So just to release your stress, <laughs> you know. But back then, so every time I get a bad mark, I would go, oh, did he find me out? Like, did, did I do something wrong? What sin did I sin that that resulted in such a great despair, <laughs> right? And great punishment of a D or a B minus, right? So like uh, that went on in the, in university. Then it actually infected me. Now, Janice, you would laugh. Affected me in football teams. You know, when the Buffalo Bills lost those Super Bowls, I go, oh, I must have sinned. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it just, you know, they, I must have sinned greatly, or else why would they have lost that, that last Super Bowl final, right? You know, that type of thing. Has that happened to you? Like, have you ever asked that? You know, whether, 
you know, when bad things happen, you go, is God punishing me? Is he trying to tell me something? Turn with me to John 9. Let's go into John 9. John 9 is a popular passage as well. It's about the blind man, uh, Jesus healing the blind man with the unorthodox ways of, you know, spitting into dirt and making clay. But he said some stuff that is very profound and very fitting for this type of question that we've asked, that I've posed and I've asked. So if everyone can turn with me with their Bibles to John 9, we'll begin with John 9, chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Interesting. Let's pause for a moment and just let us soak in. This man was born blind. He has never seen the light of day. Okay? He has never seen, he doesn't know what a human being looks like. He doesn't know what a cat looks like. Heck, he doesn't even know what a tree looks like. He's born blind. Okay? He has never seen the light of day. Okay? So let that fact sink in. This man never had a chance to see anything. So, and then uh, when, the, when the disciples saw, the, saw him, they instantly, what did they ask? What did they, uh, what did they ask uh, of Jesus? Who sinned, right? The man or the parents, right? Did he sin uh, like, uh, like when he was born? It's kind of hard to ask that question now because, you know, how could fetuses sin? You know, they're in the mom's tummy, right? How could they watch porn in the mom's tummy? You know, how could anyone do that? But anyway, so like how, like the man, they, so they were saying like, who sinned? That's the first thing that they thought about? Interesting, right? The disciples, the first thought that came to their mind. Like for us, we go, why didn't you concern yourself? But you know what? It could be like a, a panhandler right now of today. It could be a homeless man out there. Sometimes uh, like, hey, uh, we fall short of that and then say, and start judging people too, right? And say, oh, like you must have been been there because you're lazy, or you're not working hard enough, or you know that type of thing. So the, the disciples don't don't bash the disciples that that quickly because hey, we do it too, all right? So the disciples said, who sinned, Jesus, the parents or the man? See, this is interesting because the disciples were Jews, and this is what they believe is that uh, sin can, is basically you like sin occurs right at birth. All of humanity sin. Why did they say that? Well, Paul, let's go back to Paul, because Paul is a Jew too, and he was a Pharisee. So he's a good reference point of what were the Jews' mentality back then. So quickly, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. Meaning that it's like whether you're born, whether you're dead, whether you're, uh, whether you're not here yet, whether you're conceived, you're just sin. You're born into sin. So basically, for the Jews, like the disciples, like Jesus, like in that environment, in that context, everybody believed that sin, your sin when you're born, doesn't matter. And notice what the Pharisees said. He, they even qualified this. In John 9, 34, he says, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? So they threw him out. Okay, so we know that, uh, we understand where they were coming from, why the disciples asked those questions. Right? Whether the man's sin or the parents. So what was the answer? So let's go to uh, chapter 9, verse 3 then. Let's move on. Jesus responds and says this. Neither this man nor his parents sin, Jesus said, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What was the answer that the disciples wanted to hear? Definitely not this. What was the answer that the disciples wanted to hear? 
it was the, pretty much the same answer that I wanted to know when I got punished or when, I, when bad things occurred to me, right? Which, what was the sin that caused this punishment, right? That was actually what the disciples wanted to know. They were very specific. They wanted to know what was the sin that caused blindness, right? And it's kind of like me. What was the sin that caused that lousy GPA, right? What was that sin? So in their minds, they had a hierarchy of sin, right? Which one was worse? Which one was worse? It was like, um, is extramarital affairs worse than lying which, or stealing? They were trying to rate it and rate it with, along with the punishments. We can't blame these disciples as well, right? Again, these guys were Jews, and they were in a Jewish context. And knowing that Jews, they're Israelites. And uh, what scripture were there was available during the, for them? It was not the New Testament, but the Old, Old Testament. And they were really steeped, and they were very familiar with the Old Testament. So when we look at the Old Testament, it seems like right, God punishes sin, right? You sin, you get punished, literally, right? It follows through with that formula. But is it really, really that, though? Is it really true? Maybe the Israelites and maybe the disciples and maybe the Pharisees missed something. And Yancey argues that they did, and I agree with him. First of all, let's take a look at the Old Testament. Now, we're just going to, you're not going to turn to it. I'm just going to give you an overview. You know, every time the Israelites sin, or they were going to sin, or they were in sin, they were sinning, what usually happens? Usually there's a guy named a prophet, right? A prophet comes and warns them. And it's not just once, it's many times, right? It goes on for many years. Look, like, that's why the prophets are so freaking long, right? You know, in the Bible, they're, they're long because it took many years to tell the Israelites to change their ways, right? Of course, there's the minor prophets, but it's still long, right? It's those, it's lengthy. So first off, we have to understand that God doesn't just punish willy-nilly, right? Like, think about it, if my daughter Annabelle you know, was you know, running around, and suddenly I see something you know, wrong, that she did something wrong, without even telling her, I just discipline her? That's not helping. In fact, that's called abuse, right? If, if, you don't, if you don't give warnings to the child, if you don't tell them what's wrong for their actions to deserve the punishment, then, you, then that's abuse. That's not discipline. So same goes here. What I believe and what Yancey believes is that, you know, uh, we cannot think that every sin is God's punishment or that like, it's, it's uh, every uh, bad thing that's happened is God's punishment because in the Old Testament, we have to understand that God actually gives specific warnings. Warnings, but also specific punishments to that sin. Literally, like, transcribed and given clearly. It's not some anonymous thing, right, where God goes, I'll punish you. But whether you know what kind of punishment it is, no, it's a, I'm just going to roll the dice and figure it out. No, he was very specific. So there's a difference. Second, the punishment, though God appeared to have inflicted on the Israelites, though the writer seems to make it that God is the one who inflicted, actually, 99.99% of the time, it's just God letting go. Right? Why do I say that? Because every time the Israelites suffer through their consequences, what do they always say? God, come back to us. May we turn your, our faces back to you. May you return back to us. Come back to us and save us. Meaning that, actually, what the Israelites believe and what I believe is true is that it's not necessarily God, it's not about God inflicting the punishment. It's God letting us go. 
it's sort of like a teenager. You know, like um, you know, when Annabelle reaches her teenage years and she does stuff that's stupid, right? It's just that, that uh, we would just let her go. We, we would give her warnings. We would tell her like, that the consequences in the future that she may not see, right? However, there are times and place for teenagers that they have to be an adult and move on and go with it. And we will. We let her go. We have to let her fall on, flat on her butt on those days, too. However, when she comes back to us, we have to always leave that door open. We have to leave the doors wide open in the hospitality and the mercy and the grace to allow our daughter to come back and, just, uh, and we forgive them and not berate them with, I told you so's. Never do we do the I told you so's. Notice that God never says, I told you so. Whenever the Israelites come back, God doesn't say, ah, I told you so. Now grovel before me, right, and beg. No, he doesn't say that. What does he do? Basically, he runs to them and hugs them and embraces them. You've heard of this parable before. It's the prodigal son. He's always done it, and he will always continue to do it. And that's lessons for us as parents. When, we, uh, when our children grow up into teenage years and they want to go on their own, we already give them enough warnings. What are we to do when they come back? Welcome them with open arms. Forgive them. Love them. And receive them back. No lectures. No I told you so's. No conditions. Just love them. Anyway, so here's, and then, so we follow this point. So to sum up then, if it's not about God inflicting punishment on this, and if it's very specific and has a lot of warnings and prophecies, then does it really apply for this situation of the blind man? Or does it even apply for us today? No. This is where our argument goes, and Yancey continues then. No. Basically, it's already written there, and there's a lot of consequences already written in the Bible that has already given us enough warnings. And therefore, we do not need to, to, to do this formula of stressing out, saying God will punish this. It's no, because it's not actually God's punishing you. It's just God letting go. Letting us go, saying that, okay, you want your way? Go. But remind yourself, but he always reminds us that we can always go back, come back to him. And that's the beautiful element of the grace and mercy that we always receive every day from God. Amen? And this is where my point comes into play. Here, this is where Jesus wants to hit home, too. Is that it's not necessarily, the issue is not about the sin. The issue is not about his blindness. The issue is about the opportunity for, this, for him to be revealed, for the son to reveal himself. And what is this son? Who is this son? It's the embodiment of the grace and mercy of God. You follow? It's a, when Jesus says that for he to be revealed, it actually means for the grace and mercy of God to be revealed. Because that's why Jesus came to this world in the first place, is to reveal who God is. And Jesus, the embodiment of grace and mercy. And so when Jesus says, Let the, so that the works of God can be revealed, it means the works of acts of grace and mercy. That doesn't matter what you've done wrong. Okay? There's, it doesn't matter what history you have, what background, what stupidity that you made, or what stupid choices that you made. It doesn't matter. You can always go back. And that Jesus will always receive you and heal you and make you new, a new creation, and to be called his loved child again. Amen? That, that, so that when Jesus says for, his, for God's word to be revealed, it means that the works of his grace and mercy to be revealed. His grace and mercy towards humanity. No I told you so's, no accusations, no lectures, no, well, you did this and this and this and this, so pay me back. No conditions. Uh, 
another movie illusion, Coco. Remember that one? You know how the, the blessing, it's like a one, one condition, <laughs> right? And like, you cannot play music again, right? And then suddenly later on, it's like, no conditions. That's the type of thing that Jesus was uh, well, telling the blind man. No conditions. Regardless of your sin, God welcomes you. No conditions. Just come back to him and receive his grace and mercy. John chapter 9, verse 5. This is why he says this then. If God's love, grace, and mercy is embodied in Jesus, it is no wonder now that Jesus says this in John chapter 9, verse 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This light then is not this pulsating fluorescent lighting that we have in this room. Man, we've got to change this someday. But it's not this pulsating light that just repels us away from, uh, from, from God, right? It's not this pulsating light that, that, uh, like, uh, that says, holy, and then we can't even come close. It's actually this warm light, welcoming light, a, warm, a light that gives warmth, comfort, and embrace that you feel when you approach this light. It's the warmth in, of love, grace, and mercy that we all need. And hence, that's why Jesus says, look, disciples, I've got to change your mindset. It's not about sin punishment. It's not about that. Why I'm here is to let the light of the world shine. The light is the love, grace, and mercy of God. Now, after this, uh, Jesus goes on, and he does something really unorthodox. He, <laughs> you know that picture of that, that mud? I just realized, you know how much spit you have to make that mud? You know, I, 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 I chose the wrong picture, <laughs> right? I'm like, man, you not realize how much, like, anyway, never mind. John chapter 9, verse 6 to 7. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. You know, after this, the, the eye, his eyes were miraculously opened, and he can see. What can we conclude from here? God heals. Not can, not will, God heals. He has the capacity, the power to heal. All right? Full stop. However, I believe, though, that's only one way that God works to reveal his love, grace, and mercy. Agree? Healing is one, but there are many others to reveal his love, grace, and mercy. Which means that even though in Jesus' time, not all were healed. Some were, but not all. Not the whole entire humanity were, was healed, were healed. So I believe, but I believe so therefore God heals, but the most important thing in healing is the purpose. And what is that purpose of healing? Is to reveal Jesus. Reveal the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus. So healing is one way that God can reveal his love, grace, and mercy to humanity. Because recall what Jesus said to the Pharisees. The Pharisee goes, give us a sign, give us a miracle. And then Jesus goes and says, well, even if I raise a guy from, from the dead, many of you will not believe. Agree? That's what he said. And so therefore, his ultimate purpose for healing, his ultimate purpose for him here, coming here, is to allow the light to shine. And this light is the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus. So the question is then, back to the whole tragedies and sufferings and punishment, 
Where is God in all this then? That's the question that, you know, that's the title of our sermon series. Where is God when it hurts? He's with us. He's in us. He did, I, I remember one line that Ken Shigematsu over at 10th, he's the pastor over there, said, and I always uh, like sit on this, is that he says, God wastes nothing. And so even though God did not cause the sufferings that we are enduring, even in the sufferings that you're enduring right now, even though the trials that you may be experiencing, the pain, the physical pain, the mental pain, the spiritual pain that you're experiencing, know this, that he is with you, and he doesn't waste that moment. That he will use this moment to reveal his love, grace, and mercy to you. And that his spirit will be impressed in your heart to groan with you, as you, through your suffering, to make you realize and make myself realize that he is working in us to feel his presence. To take this moment and take this opportunity to allow us to feel his presence immensely. Um, there's a line that in this chapter, it goes, you know, faith, the reason why his faith is not shaken is because it was shaken. And for us, I think that line rings true for us too, is that when, uh, when we are shaken, we should allow the Holy Spirit to continue to grow with us, to impress in our hearts, to receive him, to work in us, to reveal more of who God is, his love, grace, and mercy. And that's how I want to close today is that in response to suffering, in response to trials and tragedies, in response to things that we cannot control or things that, we, that we're just experiencing today, that we allow the Holy Spirit, we pray to the Holy Spirit to fill us, to grow in with us, but most importantly, to reveal more of who God is and to receive his love, grace, and mercy in the most tangible way, personal way for each of us. Amen?